0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. One more time, and I was like half of the room. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. One more time for Jesus. I like threes. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is my distinct privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, Corey and Rachel are my soul friends. And not just Corey, Rachel too. Rachel's probably had my back in as many ways as Corey, but they are my soul friends. And it is my unique and just deep privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, i 'm a raggedy dude from a little town outside of Akron it 's amazing that people even let me hold a bible it 's nothing but god 's grace so it 's just yeah it 's my deep privilege to be with you this morning but growing up, uh my dad left real early, so I grew up being raised by my mom and my grandma primarily my aunt's too, but it was primarily my mother and my grandmother, and my mother and my grandmother are from a Christian denomination that is called the Apostolic Church. Now, this is a a version of the Apostolic Church that is not like a lot of versions you see around here. This is like the old school black Apostolic Church. So what I mean by old school black Apostolic Church is right this second, my mother has on a hat and my grandmother has on a hat. And if it was Tuesday afternoon and they were in a grocery store, guess what they would have on? A church hat because they don't leave the house with their heads uncovered. You don't wear lipstick, you don't wear open-toed sandals. I'm talking about the old-school apostolic church. So growing up on Palm Sunday, which by the way, this is the most wonderful time of the year. My wife loves Christmas, but man, this from the beginning of Holy Week all the way through June 9th when Pentecost happens. This is the most wonderful time of the year. People should put trees up. People should put lights on their houses. We should be big lit right now because this is the most wonderful time of the year. And it's going to take everything in me to only talk for 30 minutes and not talk for an hour and 30 minutes because this is the most wonderful time of the year. But since... I'm not in the apostolic church this morning, and it's where I grew up, I figured we'd bring the apostolic church to you this morning. So if you would with me, please, for the sake of exercise, would you stand with me real quick? I wanna invite you guys into my cultural tradition a little bit. And what we do sometimes, where I come from, is sometimes there are things you can teach, but sometimes there are things you can only feel. And the only way you can feel it is through singing. So if you would please with me, I wanna, I wanna invite my, my bro, Ryan, to, to lead us in an A selection. You got an A selection for us, bro? I got, I got one. I Minister got one. this morning.
1: Hold to his hands, God's unchanging hand. Hold to his hands, God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Well, don't you hold to God's unchanging hand. Hey, Gabe, can you help me out real quick? Hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. Oh, Lord, hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Why don't you hold to God's unchanging hand. Y'all got it now, can y'all sing it? Hold, hold to his hands. God's un, God's unchanging hand. Oh, Lord, hold to his hand. That's it. God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Why don't you hold to God's unchanging hand. We'll do it two more times. Hold, hold to his hand. God's, God's unchanging, unchanging hand, hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal, why don't you hold to God's unchanging hand. Oh, hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. We have in church today. Hold to his hand, God's unchanging hand. Build your hopes on things eternal. Why well, don't you hold to God's unchanging hand. I want to hear y'all. Hold, hold, hold to his hand.
0: That's it.
1: God's unchanging hand. Hold on. Hold to his hand. Yeah, yeah. God's unchanging
0: hand.
1: Build your hopes on things eternal. Gabe, hit me one time to God's unchanging hand Hallelujah Hallelujah Yeah Oh Lord
0: Hold to his hand God's unchanging hand Hold to his hand God's unchanging hand Build your hope on things eternal Hold to God's unchanging hand. If you would please remain standing with me for the reading of God's word. (laughs) Tricked you. Tricked you. So if you have your Bibles and or electronic devices, would you please turn with me and or scroll with me to Luke chapter 23. We're just going to look at verse 46 and verse 47. If you don't have it, it's all good. It's on these screens. You can look at these. When you get it, signify it by saying amen. 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 And we'll read this morning. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I'm going to read. Verse 47, one more time. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. This is God's word, and it's true. You may be seated. We're going to hit it in a few different ways, but I have one point for you this morning and one point only. And that one point is what we just sang. And for me to say it doesn't even fully articulate the point that we have this morning for you. Hold to his hand. God's unchanging hand. Hold to his hand. God's unchanging hand. Build your hope. Build our hope. Build my hope, Jesus, on things eternal. Hold to God's unchanging hand. Sometime during the seventh or ninth century, there was a man named Saint Angus. He found a valley surrounded by forested hills in the highlands of Scotland. When he found this place, he was so entranced, he was so gripped by its transcendent beauty that he decided to build a church there. And he built a church there and he decided to call it a thin place. A thin place. And he calls it a thin place because he believed that that was the thinnest place on earth, that the space between earth and heaven was so thin that he could literally feel God's presence in that place. So he built a church there. And the church exists up until this day. There are people worshiping there up until this day in this thin place, in this thin place. Around a decade ago, yeah, man, north of a decade ago, I had a friend at Malone, he was the skinny white dude. And the skinny white dude came up to me and he said, hey, I have the keys to this elementary school in downtown Canton. And he said, my dad just purchased it for a buck. You'll never believe in the world that my dad purchased a whole elementary school for a buck. And he said, I wanna start doing open gym in here. We had been hooping at another space, but he was like, I wanna do open gym in here. So we came in here, and I remember the first time I came in here. I'm not going to tell you what the bathrooms looked like the first time I came in here. I'll just say they weren't fit for Christians. (laughs) But I remember coming in this gym, and I remember seeing trash nearly up to my ankles, and unspeakable things laying on the ground. But man, the first time I walked in here with Corey, this was a thin place, man. It was a thin place. I could just feel that God was about to do something crazy. I could just feel that God was about to do a miracle. It was a thin space and it was a thin place. And then in the years following, I got the opportunity to watch how this thin space would form and how this thin space would come to be. And man, hooping turned into hooping in a meal, and hooping in a meal turned into hooping a meal and a word. And that turned into word Wednesdays, and Word Wednesdays turned into middle school night and Word Wednesdays and high school's on Wednesday and middle school's another day. And that turned into community meals every night. And then from there we see God calling Corey to plant a church here. I want to remind you guys before we go any further, this is a thin space. This is a thin space. We've seen God do miracles in this space. And the miracle of us simply sitting here, worshiping in this building, is proof of it being a thin space. I want to contend to you this morning for for the coming moments that this is a thin space. Man, I believe the same thing about the building that we're in in Akron. I could tell you a, a wild story about that building. It's 100 years old. People have been doing ministry there for over 100 years, and we get the beautiful privilege of continuing that into the next century. But man, it's a thin space. But I want to contend to you this morning that the thinnest space ever in human history, the thinnest space ever, is going to be in a place called Mount Moriah, in a section of Mount Moriah in Palestine called Golgotha, which means the skull. And that is going to be the thinnest place ever in human history. And I'm going to contend to you this morning that the thinnest moments and the thinnest place ever in human history are going to be found in what you all have been studying here in this series. These are very thin moments in the thinnest space ever in human history. Theologians over church history have come to call it the seven last sayings of Jesus. The seven last sayings of Jesus when he is on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, the space between heaven and earth gets so thin that Jesus begins to talk to God the Father directly. Jesus looks out on the people who sold him out. He looks out on the people, his disciples, who he trained for three years, who had turned their back on him and who had run away. Jesus looks out on the bystanders who he is going to the cross to redeem, who are shouting, Crazy things at him, who are calling him out of his name, who are mocking him, who have spit upon him, who drove nails through his hands and feet and put him up on a tree. Jesus looks out at them. And to the Father, he directly says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, in this thin space, as he's on the cross, looks at the two men who are standing next to him, who are hung up on the cross also, and he looks at them in the thin space, and one of them mocks him. But to the other one, he says, remember me. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. What a thin space. I'm going to contend to you this morning that what we just read in Luke, what we just read in Luke, which in the Gospel of Luke is the last of the seven sayings of Jesus, might be the thinnest moment in the thinnest space ever in human history. So what I want to do for the time that I have left is I want, to, I want to parse this last saying of Jesus. I want to dissect this last saying of Jesus. I want to break down a little bit this last saying of Jesus. And I believe found in it, God has a word for us today, man. Amen. Amen. So we start. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. We start with Father. Jesus very distinctly starts his seven last saying with Father. In Scripture, there are 951 different names and or titles for God. So nearly a thousand names. For some people, they call him Father. For some people, they say he's the mighty counselor. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's Jehovah Rapha. They call him the mighty one. They call him Elohim. Across three languages, there are going to be nearly a thousand different words and a thousand different phrases mentioned when we talk about God. And even within the unity that exists in the Godhead, they're calling each other different names. God calls Jesus, Jesus. He calls Jesus, Son. Jesus calls God the Father. He calls him the Most High. He calls him the Mighty One. The Son calls the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Teacher, the Comforter. They're gonna call each other different names, but Jesus, very purposefully and in a very pointed way, starts this prayer out With Father. He starts it out with Father. I believe there's two reasons he starts it out with Father. One, this lets us know that this is a formal prayer. So what Jesus is doing in this last of the seven sayings is Jesus is praying. How do we know this? Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he starts it with saying, address God as Father when you're praying. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, sacred be your name. So Jesus is praying. This lets us know that Jesus is praying. But What this also lets us in on is the true humanity of Jesus. Is the true humanity of Jesus. Many scholars believe that the reason that we don't see Joseph mentioned outside of the birth narratives of Jesus is because Joseph is probably dead. When Joseph and Mary get married, Joseph is probably around 30 years old, and Mary is probably around 14 years old. In that day, you did not live to be much older than 50, especially if you were a man who worked with his hands. And Joseph was a carpenter, so Joseph was probably dead at this point. Jesus, in this prayer, says, Father, not only because God is his Father, not only because he is a part of the triune Godhead, but Jesus' Father is gone. The man who showed Jesus how to be a carpenter, the man who on earth provided for Jesus and his mother and his brothers as he was growing up, is dead at this point. And Jesus calls out to God on the cross as Father, as Father. And before I go on anymore, I just want to let anyone know in this room, if you grew up like I grew up and your dad wasn't around or if your dad has passed or if you have an estranged relationship with your dad, the scripture teaches us that God is the father to the fatherless. He's the father to the fatherless. And not only is he the father to the fatherless, but God has designed us to be in community just as he eternally exists in community as the father, son, and the Holy Spirit. And there are men, there are men in our lives who through the power of the Holy Spirit will and can fill that void. Will and can fill that void. So now we go into the rest of the saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I want to first make a note here that the word spirit here is not talking about the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about the good old Holy Ghost, as they would say in the old church. This is not talking about the spirit. This is talking about Jesus' human spirit. The part of Jesus that's going to last eternally, his human spirit. So, Father, into my hands I commit, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It's talking about his human spirit. Next, in a book called Doctrines That Dance by a man named Robert Smith, he's going to say that every New Testament principle, every New Testament principle has an Old Testament picture. Every New Testament principle has an Old Testament picture. What he is not saying is every single story or every single word in the New Testament has an Old Testament one-for-one translation, because sometimes we can try to mystify, sometimes we can try to fit square pegs into into round holes when we're interpreting the New Testament. What he is saying is every underlying principle, every big picture principle, and every big principle theme in the New Testament has an Old Testament picture, has an Old Testament picture. What we're talking about today in the seventh last saying is, in fact, a New Testament principle. So with it being a New Testament principle, it has an Old Testament picture. So if you would please with me, let's turn to Psalm 31. Psalm chapter 31. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. And again, if you don't have it, it's all good. It's going to be on the screen right here. I'll read. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. O Lord, faithful God, this is God's word, and this is true. Every New Testament principle has an Old Testament picture. Here in Psalm chapter 31, we find David, who is the author. And this is going to be written, and you can read in 1 Chronicles chapter 22 through 24 to get the exact story that this comes from. But what I'm gonna do for the next few minutes is I'm just gonna paint a picture to you of why David wrote Psalm chapter 31. Here's why David wrote Psalm chapter 31. Just a little quick history on David. There was this dude who was elected king of Israel and his name was Saul. The people seen Saul and Saul was tall, Saul was handsome. Saul had a lot of sauce, right? So they look at Saul and they say, hey, we want you to be the king because you have a lot of sauce. So Saul becomes the king Samuel anoints him king, and he does the right thing for a long time, for 40 years actually. He is a man who is doing what God calls him to do. The Spirit of God is moving in and through Saul, and Saul goes on to do good work for God. But then a situation happens. He goes to war, and he disobeys God. And the anointing of God, the Spirit of God, leaves Saul. And God said, I want somebody else to be the king of Israel now. So, Instead of the people choosing a king, now God chooses a king. And God tells his prophet Samuel, hey, I want you to go to this dude Jesse's house. He goes to this dude Jesse's house, and he's like, God told me that the king is one of your sons, and he's here. So Jesse pulls out six sons, six big, nice-looking dudes, right, who are his sons. I'm imagining they look like Braun. They came out, and they were his sons. And Samuel goes one by one, and he's like, God, is it him? No, God is it him. No, God is it him. No, and he goes through all six, and he says, God, is it him? And he says, no. And he says, Jesse, the Lord told me that the king is here, so he must be here. Jesse says, well, I got one more son. He's out back. This son does not actually look like Bron. This son looks like Steph Curry. This son is not an Israelite warrior. This son is a shepherd. He outside playing with the goats. <laughs> but if you insist, I'll go out back and get him." So he goes out back and he gets his son, David, and Samuel says, "That's it. That's the king of Israel. So he anoints him king of Israel. And then Saul gets word that someone else has been anointed by Samuel, king of Israel. So Saul pulls him into the kingdom. He literally marries him off to his daughter. He makes him an army general. He uses his talents and giftings because he wants to keep him close, because he knows his time is up as the king. But then the people begin to say, man, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. Man, when there's trouble happening in the kingdom, David is not just a king who sits in the palace, but David goes out on the front lines. David is about that life. Maybe David is a better leader than Saul. So Saul hears that, and Saul gets upset. The scripture says he gets troubled in the spirit, and he begins for seven years to chase David. And what I mean by chase David is not a game of hide-and-go-seek, but I mean he had the royal guard with him trying to kill David. David is hiding in caves, David is alone, David is destitute, David is hiding in huts, David is everywhere trying to get away from Saul. And as David for 7 years is running from Saul and death is literally knocking on his door at every turn. There are stories in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles that will make you literally cry. David is by himself. Arrows are coming at David. There is a sword that literally almost kills David. Death is knocking at his door. And it's knocking at his door because he was anointed king of Israel by God. Not because of anything he was doing. Not because of some pain that he brought upon himself. But death is knocking at his door because of who God created him to be. And when David writes Psalm 31, this is the situation that David is in. And let's look at one more time what David says in verses four and five of Psalm 31. As death is knocking on his door, as he is on his last leg, this is what David says. For you take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. What we learn from David in this text is that even in the middle of David's situation, even in the middle of David's pain, this is his father-in-law who's chasing him. He's married to Saul's daughter. He's gone to war for this dude. This dude was his mentor. And now he's chasing him and trying to kill him. Death is knocking at his door. But the silver lining in all of this that David writes in Psalm 31 is that David has kingdom perspective, the peace In David's pain is David's perspective. David has the ability, because of who he knows God to be, David has the ability to, in the middle of his situation, when death is knocking on his door, even though it's not his fault, he has the perspective to say, God, I know that when the Amalekites came to take us over, that you delivered us. God, I know that when I was out with my sheep and the lion came at me, God, I know you gave me strength. God, I know when they set me up to die versus Goliath, that you were with me and that you gave me strength. So by this point in David's life, he has deep perspective that's based upon what God has already done for him. This is what's happening in Psalm chapter 31. And what Jesus is literally saying on the cross is not a depressing end-of-life statement. Jesus is not saying, well, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands now. I guess you should take me. They didn't arrest me. They didn't lie on me. They didn't spit on me. So now just take me. Jesus is not saying that. What Jesus is declaring is that in the middle of the most difficult situation in my life, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my hurt, even though I'm innocent, even though it's not my fault, what he is saying is, God, you have the victory. You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. You are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. And we know what happens next week. The redemption truly happens. Let's get lit. This is Holy Week. The redemption actually happens. Jesus raises from the dead. He commits his spirit and his body unto God. And on the third day, he gets up. This is the hope of the Christian faith. This is the hope of the Christian faith. This is not a gloomy statement when Jesus says, into my hands I commit my spirit. This is him declaring victory, the very victory of God. This is him saying, even though you have me in the net of death, this net that is the cross, check this out. Just like David, the peace in my pain is my perspective. Knowing that God has rescued me. Knowing that God will rescue me. And knowing that God one day is going to forever rescue his people. And on that day there will be no more weeping. There will be no more pain. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more prostitution. There will be no more racism. There will be nothing that separates people from the presence of God. This is the hope of the Christian life. But what does this seven last saying mean for our lives today? Thanks James for that Sunday school Bible lesson about Psalm 31, but what does this mean for our lives today? What do we take away? For the next few minutes, I'm gonna to seek to put this in our front rooms and then I'm gonna sit down because it's Palm Sunday and I could preach for three hours, but y'all gotta to go to lunch and I do too, praise God. So. What does this mean for us? What does this look like in our living room? What does this look like in Canton, Ohio? Point one, Jesus on the cross is speaking the word of God into his situation. As we just read in Psalm 31, Jesus is literally quoting the scripture. Jesus is on the cross. The last statement of his life is the scripture. There is power in the scripture. There's power in God's word. It's not just the words that were written by these dudes who are good writers, but the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is profitable for teaching. It is profitable for reproof. It is profitable for encouragement. It is profitable for all walks of life. God's word is true. It is inspired by his Holy Spirit. It is called the sword of the Spirit for a reason. Jesus from the cross. Last thing he says is the scriptures. And he's declaring victory over his situation. He picks up his sword, looks at his situation, and he says, Hey, yo, Storm, I'm not going to talk about how big you are but I'm about to show you how big my God is. Ha ha, Death. Even though you think you about to trap me, even though you think you about to get this dub, hey, Death, God has the victory. And he literally speaks the word of God into his situation. It was about four or five months ago, I was going crazy, man. Leading a church is crazy. Planting a church is crazy. Give Corey lots of hugs. Give Rachel lots of hugs. It's really difficult. It's crazy. The people of God are nuts. Read the Bible. It's really hard. So I find myself in a season where my primary mentor is, like, taking another job. So I can't even talk to that dude because he's just, like, real busy. So I'm just out here by myself trying to lead this church. We started a community development corporation. I'm not an organized individual, so everybody's like, hey, what do I do? What do I do? How do I do it? I'm like, yo, do it. <laughs> love Jesus and love people. Where you're at, be a missionary. And they're like, no, no, no. We need a 10-step process. And I'm just like tripping. And I'm like, I can't do this. So I go to my coach in this leadership development organization. And who would have who thought? I'm a 30-year-old black man. Who would have thought? that my mentor would be a 40 year old white woman today. But listen to me, this 40 year old white woman sat me down and she heard me and she understood what I was saying. And she said, James, this happened to us a decade ago when we were planning a church. And she said, you're gonna be okay. And she began to read me scriptures. And she said, this is what God says about you. She said, you were fearfully and wonderfully made she said, You were created in the image of God. She said, Before the foundations of the world were framed, God seen you in this situation, and God is with you. She said, No weapon formed against you will prosper. And she began to speak God's word into my life. And as I began to take that, and as situations begin to arise, before anything happened, I began to speak God's word over my situation. And check this out the situation didn't change it's still very hard but I did but I did what if we looked at our situations not as a victim but what if we looked at our situations as somebody who's girded about with the sword of the spirit somebody who's girded about with the power of God the inspired word of God as James chapter 1 says the implanted word of God that is able to save your souls. Let me end point one with this. Get in the text. Get in the text. Get in the text. The text is more important than your social calendar. The text is more important than what you have to do. The text is God's Word and it is true. And that implanted word of God is not only able to save your soul, but the souls of the people around you. Get in God's word. And if you don't know how to, Corey just talked about a great class called Who is Hermeneutic. Go to Who is Hermeneutic if you're saying, yo, that sounds good, but I pick it up and I don't really know what it means. There's all these big words in it. I don't know any of this geography. I don't know what the heck is going on. Go to Who is Hermeneutic. Ask Corey. Ask Marcus. Ask the leaders here. They're some of my dearest friends, and I know that they would love to show you what that means. Point one, getting in text. Jesus speaks God's word into his situation. Point two, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You see he's quoting David. And you see, one thing we know about David is that even though David did some real shoddy things in his life, I'm talking about David did some like shady things. Like David did some things that like you would find on love and hip hop. <laughs> like I'm just gonna keep it a thousand with you. Like David gets caught up, he's supposed to be at war, he disobeys God, he cheats on his wife, he has a dude killed. Um, we could just keep going. He takes a census when he's not supposed to. He sheds so much blood that God literally tells him he cannot build a temple. David did some jacked up things. But one thing we know about David is that when the rubber met the road, David's full trust was in the Lord. And why is David's full trust in the Lord? His full trust is in the Lord because he knows and he realizes that the hands of God, the hands that he's committing his spirit into, are big enough to hold him. They're big enough to hold him. They're big enough to hold him. And I want to encourage somebody this morning that God's hands are big enough to hold your situation. Commit your full trust to Jesus, his hands are big enough. His hands are big enough. I was on an airplane with my wife and my daughter last summer. We went to my family reunion, which was in New Orleans. I don't know who decided. To ha- we don't have any family there. It was a, just a terrible idea. <laughs> like, it was a terrible idea. So we go to New Orleans, and my wife goes to sleep on the plane. And she hands me my daughter, who had, like, just turned one at that point. She really wasn't feeling the airplane. And I don't really feel airplanes, either. Airplanes kind of make me scared, and they kind of make me scared because I literally don't have control of what's going on. I like to think that I'm easygoing, but I don't like airplanes because, like, I'm not in control, and I'm suspended, like, 30,000 feet in the air, and every time a little bit of turbulence happens, I start praying. I pray in tongues when turbulence happens. (laughs) Listen, I start praying in the Spirit, and Jesus rescue. I start the Psalms. Rescue me, Jesus, from this turbulence. (laughs) But I'm on the plane. My wife is asleep. I'm already scared. I'm holding my young daughter. We've been on the airplane too long. And we hit this like ridiculous pocket of turbulence. And my wife doesn't care about airplanes so she's like knocked out sleep. And I'm holding Jada and I'm like, Lord, 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 Lord. And then I open my eyes and I look at Jada and I literally like see the same fear in her eyes too. She's confused, and she's a baby, and she doesn't know what's going on. She has no idea what's happening. I probably more for my sake grabbed Jada close. I kissed her on her forehead, and I looked at her. And in that moment, I seen her continence change. And I believe that her continence changed in that moment because even though we hit a rough patch of air, even though the turbulence was something that I wish would stop, even though I was in, not in control at all of the situation that was happening on the plane. Jada was okay because she was in her father's hands. And listen, friends, I come here to tell somebody today that you may be experiencing turbulence in your life. You may be in a situation that you have no control over, a situation that you've been hiding, a situation that you don't want anybody to know about. You may be experiencing hurt that no one would understand, hurt so deep that you can't even articulate it. Someone may have done something to you, you may have done something to someone that is not your fault. But I come here to tell you today that in life's turbulence, in turbulent situations, God's hands are big enough to hold you. He is our Father. And when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what Jesus is saying is the Father has got me. He is holding me. And I came here this morning to tell you that if you are in that kind of situation, trust God, The Father is holding you. The same God that was holding David when death was knocking on his door is holding you. The same God who on the cross Jesus says, I commit myself fully. I commit my trust to you. He is holding you. Jesus is holding you. And his hands are big enough. They're the same hands that reach down into the grave to death and raise Jesus from the dead. And if his hands are big enough to defy death, his hands are surely big enough to hold us as well. And in closing, can I get the Luke passage back up one more time? In closing. And this is perfect. I'm going to be back there jumping because baptism is about to happen. It's Holy Week and baptism is about to happen. Let's read this. I'm lit. I'm sorry. (laughs) Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying that certainly this man is innocent. We don't have time to fully get into the exegesis of who a centurion was. But a centurion is someone who is not a Jew. The The text points out that he's a centurion because he is not a person who was raised up knowing and loving the God of Israel. He is someone who is a foreigner, a centurion, saw what had taken place. He saw what happened on the cross. He heard Jesus say these seven last sayings, and he praised God, and he praised God. So the trust that Jesus shows to the Father on the cross is not only saving him, but it's saving somebody else. That might just be me. I, I might just be lit. What I believe this text is saying is that when we put our whole trust and our whole faith in Jesus, that byproduct, we are missionaries. When we trust Jesus fully, when we speak the word of God into our situation, the people around us see it. And a man who is not a Jew is praising God and saying, certainly this man was innocent. A man who was probably saying free Barabbas is now, because of what he's seen, because of how Jesus lived his life, is now praising God. Someone who is far away from Israel. I challenge you. I challenge you. What would it look like if something rough happened to you at your job and you were able to say, hey, I'm not going to participate in this gossip about my boss, but I'm going to trust Jesus. Jesus because his hands are big enough to hold me. What if something wild was happening on campus and you didn't flip out and you didn't lose your mind and you said, God's big enough to hold me. Man, maybe some people around us, maybe some people around us would come to know Jesus as a result of our faith, of our faith. Today, right after this, we're gonna participate in a baptism a ritual that Christians have done for the last 2,000 years. And baptism is a great way for you to say to the community around you, hey, I trust Jesus fully. So I challenge you, if you're someone in here who's thinking about taking a next step in their faith, baptism is a great next step to take. It's a wonderful way to say to people, hey, I I trust Jesus, and into his hands, I commit my, my spirit, my body, my soul, and my life.